Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed good day and welcome to indoor air quality radio wherever you're listening from and uh it's great iaq radio for friday october 17th 2008 this week episode 99 comes to you from studio b in beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and back with me in the studio this week is the z-man cliff slot it's great to be back and it's always a pleasure joe good day cliff and at the controls with us as usual is the wingman chris boisel Good right. afternoon. Hello, Chris. Look, we've got our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, will be joining us in just a moment. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Mr. Bob Went, a building science specialist, uh, formerly with Oak Ridge National Labs, looking forward to talking a little building science today. We also have a new segment this week called Insurance Issues with Brian McFarland of Legends Environmental Insurance Services. And then we'll bring Bob back in, and uh, we're, we're going to do the insurance issues at halftime, bring Dr. Dieter in. Then we'll come back to the second half with Bob, and we'll finish up, as usual, with the roundup. We've been working on that iaqradio.com website. Didn't get the blog up last week, but uh, we're still making changes every week. Check it out after the show at www.iaqradio.com. Before we get started, we've got to thank our sponsors. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legendsenviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. To contact the show, you can call 724 724- 444-7444. Our show ID is 1547, and you just have to press 1 to join the show. You can also download the show, which is what most people do, by going to our website, www.iaqradio.com, and follow the link that says go to the show, or you can download them from iTunes. You can also get IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz, my email is joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Or you can also make requests, suggestions, or talk to us about guests, etc., by emailing me or the Z-Man at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. That's Z-L-O-T-N-I-K. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com let's go to the microband trivia question thanks joe Before we do today's trivia question, what I'd like to do is clear up some trivia questions from the past. Uh, Question 96 is still out there, and Joe and I have decided to give you a hint. Uh, The hint for question 96 would be a percussion technical enhancement for Tchaikovsky's War of 1812 Overture. 
Uh, correct answer goes, or congratulations go out to Dan Reed of Intuitive Environmental Solutions. Again, he read our mind and gave us a correct answer uh, for trivia question number 97. That answer is NIST, N-I-S-T, National Institute of Standards and Technology. We'd also like to give you a hint for trivia question number 98. Uh, the hint would be sweet but toxic. Okay, the trivia question for Friday, October 17th, 2008, comes from the field of architecture. Considered one of history's most original architects, this architect died from injuries suffered from being run over by a tram on his way to evening prayer. What is his full and correct name? Back to you, Joe. All right. Looks like uh, the trivia experts are stumped on 96. That's a tough one, Cliff. All right. This week, we've got Mr. Bob Went. Bob is a research architect specializing in building science investigations of residential buildings. Bob retired from Oak Ridge National Laboratories Building Technology Center in January of 2008. He is currently an independent consultant and an adjunct professor in the Mechanical Engineering Department of Tuskegee University. Bob's current activities include research into the impact of mold and contaminants on residential building materials that have been subjected to flooding or other water damage. This work has been in support of the Department of Homeland Security's Disaster Resilient Homes Project. While at Oak Ridge National Labs, Bob collaborated with Tuskegee University between 2000 and 2004 on flood damage resistance testing of residential building materials and systems. This work was done for FEMA and HUD. In 2005, Bob and several others from the restoration industry joined FEMA's mitigation assessment team to investigate the impact of long-term flooding on buildings in New Orleans after Katrina. While the devastation in New Orleans was overwhelming, Bob saw many instances where the damage was consistent with what was observed in the earlier Tuskegee University testing. So in June of 2007, he and Dr. Heshmet Aglin of Tuskegee received the John R. Schaefer Award for Excellence in Floodproofing from the Association of State Floodplain Managers for the project entitled Flood Damage Resistance of Building Materials and Systems. And welcome, Bob. Do we have uh, some intro music for him? Welcome, Bob. Welcome to IQ Radio. Hello, Bob. Do we have you? Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. Good to have you here with us on IAQ Radio. I'm, I'm curious. When, well, let's start with the, the question that's kind of on, on my mind, and I think it's on other people's minds. What is a, a building science specialist, Bob? Well, basically what we do uh, is to analyze uh, building issues and questions, problems uh, like mold or moisture or uh, how it performs in heating and cooling uh, using science principles of investigation, experimentation, analysis, modeling, and things such as that to uh, really try and look at the issues associated with buildings in a scientific manner. It's, it's applying the uh, scientific approach to uh, the design and um, operation of buildings. Um, Bob, when and how did you become interested in the adverse effect of water on various building materials? Well, that's the kind of a, a, an interesting and uh, somewhat a, a, obscure start. If, if I may, I, I was working in the mid-1990s um, looking to find uh, an insulation system for um, solid masonry walls in public housing. These were with brick on the outside and concrete block on the inside and maybe an air gap, but no insulation. And up north in Chicago, they were real energy hogs. And so we were looking at how to 
come up with an insulation system that could be retrofit into these buildings. Also one that had a, a, the kind of uh, durability that was necessary for public housing that would be viewed as a uh, challenging or hostile environment in terms of damage and things like that. So we uh, in, identified um, an insulation material, final acryl, uh, polyisocyanurate insulation, I should say, and uh, a, um, uh, a gypsum uh, wallboard material from Louisiana Pacific at the time called Fiberbond, which was a, a fiber-reinforced gypsum board as opposed to a paper face, the cellulose fibers were in the gypsum matrix. Anyhow, uh, that project was successful. Uh, we uh, installed it in a building, and in the process of interacting with the, the sales representative from Louisiana Pacific, he shared a, uh, an instance where this product had been used in a jail, and they'd had a major water leak due to a fire sprinkler line break or something like that, rupture, and that uh, the material performed surprisingly well under moist conditions. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder uh, what might happen, you know, could this have applications elsewhere? And so I started uh, with a small couple of plastic pans and some water from the tap and some samples of this uh, gypsum board and polyisocyanurate insulation material that I stuck in the water and uh, left submerged for a couple of days and then pulled out and studied it and tried it painted, unpainted, in with oil-based paint and things like that, and, and found that the uh, material performed uh, far better than uh, people or I would have expected it to, and, and that was kind of the naissance of, of this uh, thought. And from that, I believe that it would be possible to develop some really truly flood damage-resistant materials for housing, and we proposed a, a project to um, the Department of Energy uh, who did some of the initial um, support on the project, and then FEMA and HUD, who supported the bulk of the work um, in later years. And uh, interestingly enough, they accepted the concept, and we actually started the, the work at Tuskegee. So that was uh, how I became interested in um, the adverse effects of water on building materials. Thanks. While you were, you know, while you were, your, your background is an architect, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and while you were learning to be an architect in school, can you remember any course material that, you know, specifically dealt with the adverse effect of water on building materials? Well, um, I graduated from the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago uh, in 1965. And um, at that time, um, they uh, taught us uh, flashing details for how to keep water out of buildings and uh, how to build roofs. Uh, hopefully that wouldn't leak and things such as that. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the design vogue at the time in the uh, at IIT and in Chicago was a lot of flat roof buildings, and uh, these buildings are uh, notorious for having problems with water leaks. And so we saw we as architects saw a lot of evidence, or some evidence, I should say, on campus of uh, you know water damage from roof leaks and things such as that. But in terms of formal training and addressing it, no, um, they, they really didn't uh, address the issue. Can I, can I follow up sure, on that, Cliff? On, I, I'm just curious because I, you know, we've talked building sciences with a lot of different people, and I've always heard it said that you know in the past uh, architects were trained more as engineers, and then it became more of an art, and the training was more art-like. So even back in '65, was was it more of an engineering type of curriculum, or was it more of an art-type curriculum, and can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Well, uh, IIT uh, was a school that uh, Mies van der Rohe, the uh, famous modernist architect, uh, uh, started. And in, at that point in time in its uh, architectural department career, uh, it was still heavily under uh, his influence philosophically, though he had retired. Uh, Mies was very much interested in structure and structural engineering. And so uh, a lot of the engineering approach that we uh, studied was structural. In terms of other aspects of engineering, uh, enough to enable us to get by, but uh, there wasn't a significant focus on mechanical and electrical engineering. Uh, since then, um, the school has evolved more towards, uh, from my perception at least, the 
conventional uh, architectural schools, which are more art-oriented than uh, engineering-oriented. And I think that's uh, probably you know, a fair statement on many of the schools in the country today, that they're uh, more art-oriented than engineering-oriented. And almost, uh, as, as, at least as many as I am familiar with, uh, none of them really go into the question of building sciences and look at it in that analytical view. What I'd like to do is, is kind of switch over to, to some of your, your research. Uh, when you were doing, I understand that, you know, Tuskegee uh, and that ORNL, some submersion testing was done. And I'm wondering what sort of water uh, was utilized for this testing? What sort of building materials did you just, you know, put building materials in the middle of a swimming pool, or can you just kind of tell us a, a little bit about, you know, the studies and how that was set up? Sure. sure. Well, um, in the little home test that I did in the very early part, initially it was uh, with tap water, and uh, when the wetting and drying didn't seem to particularly affect the materials, I thought, well, maybe there's something I should look at, and went down the street to the nearby Clinch River, or Melton Lake, which is about a block from our house, and got a couple of buckets of water and brought it back and used that for testing our pans. Uh, results um, quite similar to tap water, except that that had a little more um, sediment and, and discolored the materials a little more. The uh, testing at Tuskegee was done um, uh, in basins that were created, earthen basins, earthen dike basins uh, that we created, and then um, built a uh, eight foot by eight foot slab on grade and a, a raised foundation for a, a wooden floor type structure in these basins and then built our test modules on top of those. We were able to get about uh, uh, two feet of water over the floor level in each of these and the, the source of the water was an adjacent, literally, uh, maybe 50 feet away, uh, agricultural lake. Uh, which was uh, a lake that uh, was a naturally occurring lake on the Tuskegee campus. And uh, the inflow to the lake was across some agricultural fields that had, um, uh, you know, um, growing materials like you'd find in farmland uh, and or some um, animals as well. So it was kind of uh, the drainage from uh, typical uh, rural agricultural areas, and we use that water uh, for our testing. Were there any results that were surprising to you, and if so, what way? Well, yeah, uh, the, it, they were. Um, I had used this um, um, plastic foam insulation, and uh, it's the same stuff that uh, styrofoam cups are made out of, or very similar. Uh, at least in terms of its ability to shed or, or not permit water to come in, and uh, was fairly convinced that using uh, foam insulation and uh, doing a good job of uh, sealing the building should enable us to uh, do what they call dry slug proof uh, the home. Uh, we came up with some um, dams, I'll call them water dams for doors and windows, which we made out of two-inch thick uh, uh, polystyrene insulation and caulked it in place with uh, silicone caulk. And that, interestingly enough, seemed to work extremely well. So we ran a test on one of our test modules, and, and I personally went out and uh, went through it and caulked all the cracks and joints and seams, and we put the dams in place, and we had the foam insulation in the cavities on the outside wall, and we thought, you know, we're going to make a dry, flood-proof home. And... Uh, started to fill with basin. Uh, let me jump back for a second. Um, uh, the test modules had closed-circuit television cameras in them so that we could observe what was going on on the inside of the uh, test module while we were flooding it. And we were watching as the water started to rise, and, and just as the water got to floor level, uh, we were very carefully focused on the television cameras, and we began to see water entering the house and uh, became just incredibly flustered and frustrated. I mean, it was just kind of like, why is this not working? The dams are holding. You can see the uh, 
that they're holding the water back because they're they're uh, deflecting a little bit, which suggests that uh, they don't have water on the backside, and yet there's water in the house. What's going on? Well, we did the test twice, and, and on the second one, we actually went in right after draining the basin and looked. And what we found was that the water was entering the house through the joints between two two-by-fours nailed side-by-side on either side of the door, you know, the doubling of studs, and the joints uh, on the corner two-by-fours where they were to, uh, joined together. And even uh, more prevalent, the uh, crack between the two-by-four and the sill plate. You know, this is typically nailed together and relatively tight, and people would say, you know, that's a, that's a tight joint. But the hydrostatic pressure of the water was such that it, it found a little aperture somewhere in the uh, exterior of the home, got in and found these cracks and came in and uh, filled the house with water. It took probably about 20 or 30 minutes longer for the house to fill than it did the basin to fill, so it did dampen the flow. But I went from being a firm believer that we could have a dry flood proofing to a great skeptic. And uh, I, I just... I think that that option under typical residential construction is a non-starter. And that was kind of a, a, a surprise because, you know, theoretically everything would say, yeah, you've got a winner here. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, yep. I'm just curious that it didn't work keeping it dry. So I guess the next step would be to design it in a way that it, once it does get wet, it dries out. Exactly. Yeah. That, to me, that's, uh, the key, uh, if you're building in areas where you're potentially subject to water damage, uh, you know, basements, uh, in non-flood areas where you could have a broken pipe or a sewer backup or something, uh, or homes that are uh, near or within the floodplain, uh, or homes that are uh, in hurricane damage areas where you could get water damage that way. If you have the potential for water damage, you really want to design the home so it can dry and dry completely and dry as quickly as possible. And uh, those are, uh, I think, the key factors uh, to uh, use a cliche that the politicians are using a lot. It's not uh, drill, baby, drill, or jobs, baby, jobs, but this is dry, baby, dry (laughs) on this. You've really got to get the building uh, dry. Sounds like... that's out of where mold can develop. Okay, so we've got to design things in a way where the the we know they're going to get wet. So let's design them in a way that they dry out. And uh, I'm just curious, have you, as a part of your work, were you able to you know make a difference in the implementation of any government policies or building codes, etc., that you know t- kind of takes this research and and puts it into practice? To some extent, yes. Uh, it's still um, evolving. Um, I've been working um, with the uh, folks that are um, revising FEMA's uh, flood damage resistant materials uh, listing. I believe that it's technical bulletin two. I'm not absolutely certain of the number, but I think that's it. And it, a, a new version of that's coming out, uh, and it has a significant amount of input from me in it as well as others. The um, frustration that I have is that um, there's still information and knowledge that isn't in there that should be. As a, for example, um, the original uh, flood damage resistance uh, materials uh, analysis and information was developed by the Corps of Engineers, a good organization, but their primary focus was on, uh, much of it was on the uh, structural integrity of materials and uh, things such as that. Um, They have concrete as a uh, flood damage resistant material and most people would say sure. But if you put a concrete basement wall in a house up north where you have uh, uh, fuel oil heating and uh, a flood occurs and the fuel oil tank ruptures and the fuel oil gets into the pores of the concrete, it can be incredibly difficult to remove and um, can provide an unhealthful environment. In fact, there were some houses, uh, basement-type houses up in Grand Forks, North Dakota during their flood of, what was it, the early 90s, that had this occur, and houses that were otherwise 
restorable were condemned and demolished because they couldn't get rid of the uh, hydrocarbons in the basement walls. Hmm. So uh, the the you know the true clear understanding of where these materials are flood damage resistant and where they shouldn't be used or where you might have to deal with other things uh, hasn't really gotten into the documents as yet. And that's one of the areas that we're looking at, especially in regard to mold and, and other forms of contaminants like fuel oil. Are you frustrated by conflicting information and inconsistencies of technical information and opinion among various governmental agencies, such as what can be salvaged and what can't? And um... Well, um, th there is there's a, uh, a lot of uh, organizations interested in various facets of this, uh, EPA in, in terms of uh, uh, the environmental aspects of it, HUD in terms of the fact that it's part of housing, FEMA in, in, in terms of um, disaster mitigation, and uh, they also run the flood uh, insurance program, so they have a vested interest from that viewpoint as well. And uh, each of them are looking at information in that of, from a little bit different filter, um, and uh, so there's some challenges for consistency. Generally, I think it's pretty good. One of the, I guess, frustrations that I have uh, in it is that um, we've gotten technologically where we are able to measure um, pollutants and, and bacteria counts and, and mold and all the other things with a very high degree of sophistication and accuracy. Uh, and we can see things that 50 or 100 years ago you, you'd never be able to be aware that they were there because you couldn't measure them. And we are now setting um, guidelines in terms of what's acceptable or not uh, in terms of various contaminants based on our ability to read these things down to very minute quantities, parts per billion or million or whatever. And uh, the real question I have is, um, okay, suppose we have 50 parts per billion of something does that really create something that is a health hazard or has adverse consequences to the occupant of the home? Or is it just 50 parts per billion of something in the home? What is the health effect? And that's, that's one of the challenges and uh, frustrations that I have is, you know, we want to do the right thing. As an architect, we build houses for the occupants to live in healthfully and uh, enjoy and uh, have a pleasant environment and hopefully they're aesthetic and functional and all the other things that architects do, but it's for the occupant and um, are these potential contaminants or things that occur as a result of uh, water damage with a sewer backup or a flood or something, are they in the range of creating a health hazard or a, an adverse living condition for the occupant or are they just there? And that's one of the things that I think we need more study on. So that's kind of a frustration. That's not a, a criticism of anybody. It's just we haven't gotten there yet. I hear you. That's a, that's a great observation. Bob, let's, we're going to go to what we call our halftime here, and then uh, we're going to bring you back in just a moment. We're going to uh, bring our technical director on, and then we've got a text message as well. Let's, uh, let's go to halftime. We'll be right back. Thank you. All right. By the way, that's also the acronym police. If you use too many acronyms, we'll pull you over and uh, you'll hear that siren again. All right. This week at halftime, we've got a little different uh, segment this week. We're going to do a segment called Insurance Issues with Brian McFarland of Legends Environmental Insurances. Let's see if we've got Brian on the line. Oh, hello, Brian. Good morning, Joe. How are you? Good, good. Thanks. I know it's still morning out where you're at, but we're we're moving moving into afternoon here. But uh, it's great to have you <laughs> on the line. I know you have a little uh, little little uh, segment that you do, and we're going to set it up today by talking about some of the issues with buying insurance. Uh, we sure are. What we're going to talk about actually over the next uh, seven to eight months are the you know, the seven sins of buying insurance, what can go wrong and what you need to consider when you're buying insurance. Great. What's the first sin of buying insurance, Brian? Uh, choosing the wrong agent or broker. 
And, uh, you know, as strange as this may seem, the biggest problem that most environmental companies have uh, with their insurance actually may be the current insurance agent or broker. And it's not that that agent is not trying to do a good job, but, you know, they really don't, they usually don't handle the environmental industry on a day-to-day basis. And uh, that, that puts them out of touch with the insurance marketplace that is constantly changing. Uh, and keep it up, not with just the environmental industry, but the environmental insurance industry. It's a full-time job. Uh, and, and let me give you a, a little bit of more information on that. Um, if you look at the environmental insurance marketplace as a whole, every year uh, there's an average of four carriers that start offering policies and then four carriers that stop offering policies. And, and, and so what that means is every year there's new carriers that are you know, all of a sudden they're offering coverage and, and carriers that have stopped offering coverage. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, the, the, the policy forms are constantly changing. So the carriers are constantly changing their forms. And that would be a little bit different than the standard insurance marketplace. Um, and certainly, you know, keeping up with that type of information uh, and, and keeping track of who, who's now offering coverage, who's not offering coverage, and you know, with the changes to the policy forms is a full-time job. And if you really don't specialize in that in the environmental industry uh, as an agent, uh, you certainly would have a very difficult time uh, keeping up with that. And let me give you a, a real-life example of, of how something like that might work. Uh, not too long ago, uh, just last month, actually, uh, I quoted a large environmental contractor in Illinois uh, for his uh, general liability coverage, and uh, we had competition on it. What that means is there was also another agent uh, quoting, uh, you know, his coverage as well. And that agent uh, had sent over uh, what he believed to be the policy forms that I was offering uh, to compare them to the policy forms that he was offering. It turns out that as I went through the with through the with uh, the in, in contractor that the forms that were sent to him were over 10 years old. Oh. Uh, and, and it's not, and had been used uh, by that insurance carrier for the past seven years. Um, and it's not that that insurance agent was trying to be malicious, it's that they had no idea that those policy forms were outdated. Uh, and that just comes from, from not being involved in the industry. When we actually compared the correct forms, uh, it, it turned out that... Uh, uh, you know, those forms that we were quoting were not only superior to the to the other carriers' forms, but also the policy ended up being uh, significantly cheaper. That's uh, interesting. And the, and the Go ahead. Yeah, and the the last part about this would be, you know, it's important to find an independent insurance agent. Uh, an independent agent or broker is somebody that represents a multitude of carriers, that they're not beholden to just one insurance carrier. Uh, because if they are beholden just to one insurance carrier, they're not going to be able to shop your insurance around looking at the multiple policies and multiple rates to make sure that you have the, the, the best coverage in place. Well, thanks for that, Brian. Now, I, I've got a quick follow-up. I don't know if we can do it quick or not, but the economic climate has changed dramatically here in the last three or four weeks, I guess. Has that, and, and you know, obviously one of the big names out there is AIG and the problems they have had. Has that affected? Uh, it seems like we almost set this up, but we didn't. Has that <laughs> has that affected this issue as well? Uh, it, it certainly has affected the issue, and that's actually next week's uh, uh, that next that's next week's sin talking about the insurance uh, company rating, gotcha. uh, and by and by rating I mean financial strength. Uh, but, you know, more importantly than, than financial strength, um, you know, we're going to certainly go through that. But, you know, AIG is the largest insurance carrier in the world uh, with the best rating or, or up until now had the best uh, financial rating of any insurance carrier in the world. Uh, so certainly if, if that company can go through the uh, tribulations that they recently have, you know, any carrier is subject to, you know, possibly going through that as well. Now, most carriers, or a lot of carriers uh, that specialize in environmental contractors and consultants, you know, aren't in the 
in the full financial services that AIG may be in, that you know they got in trouble in some other areas besides their environmental division. Um, and their environmental division is still uh, very sound and, and a profitable division for their company. Uh, and, and I would imagine that, uh, well, I don't imagine. I, I know that, uh, you know, there's companies that are insured with AIG currently. Uh, there's environmental contractors and consultants at least. That, that they're in a solid position as the environmental division, uh, you know, is, is doing very well. Um, but certainly next week we're going we're gonna to focus on that a, a little bit more uh, thoroughly and uh, hope, or the next, maybe in two weeks. Yeah, let's go in uh, two we'll, weeks. We'll, and we'll focus on that a little more thoroughly. But thanks for the question. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Brian. We'll see you back here for Show 101 in two weeks. Okay, great. All right. Have a great weekend. You too. Let's go over to our technical director, Dr. Dieter, here. See what Dr. Dietrich uh, Weil has to say. Hello, Dieter. Oh. Yeah, I'm here. All right. All right. I like the music. Uh, okay, Dieter. Let's do something about the music during the introduction. I have a couple of good CDs for that. All <laughs> right. We're, we're looking for a new intro after show 100, Dieter. All Let's right. I will, I will find something. Let's bring Bob, uh, bring Bob Went back on the line here, too, if you okay. would, there, wingman. And uh, if you can unmute guest one, we'll make sure that Bob's with us as well. Any comments or questions for Bob while we're here, Dieter? Oh, well, yes, absolutely. And a general question, I, uh, I've been working with you for seven or eight years, whatever it is, and you know my attitude towards modern architects. And it is wonderful that a mechanical engineer, and you know that I have a BS and an MS in mechanical engineering, um, once in a while, I think you don't have to be an architect and an artist. I think you ought to look at the basics to look at uh, very simple things which we so often seem to overlook. And um, uh, I still maintain that the old way of how I was taught and how my grandmother beat it into me um, has merit. I, I think you ought to be able to add 5 and 10 without a calculator. I, I, I really believe that. And I, I, I like Bob's attitude. And I said, hey, look. Yeah, there was a problem. It doesn't matter whether it's architecture or whether it's whatever else it is. And I said, I took a step back and I looked at it and I said, gee, you know, let's, let's kind of make a little experiment and look at it. And of course, yeah, he did it in an, in an institute when I think of Oak Ridge, which is just unbelievable what happened there in 1943 uh, that I think was... I mean, it certainly was part of the Manhattan Project. I think it was Project X-10. I studied uh, that one for years and years and years. That's one of correct. the most wonderful <laughs> projects ever done. I think still the most expensive one ever in the world. I mean, with uh, adjusted uh, to inflation and so on. But what these guys did over there is absolutely mind-boggling what happened. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I don't want to be sarcastic, but the whole thing was managed by the government, and they did a marvelous job. There you go. So well, once in a while, they are right. They don't always do it wrong, huh? Let Bob. Yeah, any... I mean, it's uh, until today. Probably Bob uh, knows a little bit more about the history over there, but I just remember that Oak Ridge, and I worked with a couple of people over there, and some of the employees over there were students of mine, or. We were students when I was a student at the University of Pittsburgh. Good God, this is now 40 years ago. Bob, any, any follow-up to that? Well, uh, he's right. Uh, we, um, the Oak Ridge complex here was part of the Manhattan Project uh, back in uh, 1943. The hills of East Tennessee were uh, pretty rural, uh, chosen because of their isolation uh, geographically, topographically. Uh, culturally even from the rest of the United States. And uh, they wanted to pick a place uh, that was like that, but had a university, which was the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, about uh, 35 miles away from Oak Ridge, 30, 35 miles. And so they developed Oak Ridge. And just a, a couple of the tidbits that still wow me is that uh, the city went from a few hundred people living in rural environments to a city of 75,000 wow. in 18 months. 18 months. Uh, there were tens of millions of square feet of industrial space built uh, in the three plant sites. Uh, one of the, 
buildings at Oak Ridge, which is now in the process of being decontaminated, decommissioned, and demolished, uh, was the gaseous diffusion plant building, and it had a, a, a gross floor area of 42 acres. Ooh, Think about that. 42 acres. Right. And uh, it was said that the power consumption by that plant when it was in full operation was comparable to the Manhattan Island power consumption, not no relationship to the Manhattan Project. I mean, New York City, Manhattan Island. Wow. So uh, there's, you know, rather big things that occurred here during the war, and there's a, a great deal of um, history associated with that. But subsequently, um, after the war ended, uh, Oak Ridge uh, missions evolved, at least the Oak Ridge National Laboratory's missions evolved. Originally, it was looking at uh, developing a pilot plant for producing plutonium used in the nuclear weapons. Uh, subsequently, it uh, evolved into nuclear power generation, and during the uh, heyday of the early designs of power plants, uh, it was much involved in that. It, in the 70s, um, it got involved in um, conservation and renewable energies as well, and the conservation program was what was the... Um, start of the building uh, technology center that I worked for in, in Oak Ridge. Um, and then subsequently from there, it has gone further into basic sciences, uh, nuclear sciences and others, uh, and um, into high performance computing. Uh, what else? Uh, environmental um, remediation uh, for the DOE facilities and other environmental issues. and. Uh, so it, the emission has evolved over time. The laboratory is still uh, quite active and uh, doing, uh, you know, as any agency for the government is, it has its ups and downs, but it is doing quite well and appears to be very stable after well more than 50 years of life. It was an interesting and exciting place to work for. It sounds like it was really interesting. Dieter, can we bring you back for the roundup? Yeah, sure. Is that is, is now the time? No, nope. we'll be back in about 15, 20 minutes. Oh, oh sure. About 15 Absolutely. minutes. Yeah, All right, we'll see you then. Absolutely. Uh, Bob, while we're still at uh, halftime, I had a text message. Uh, Chris, can you scroll up a little bit here? I want to see. I'm not, I don't want to throw any curveballs at you, but this week, I guess, ASHRAE announced that uh, they were disbanding SBC 189.1. Uh, the standard for the design of high-performance green buildings. Are, are you familiar with that? Uh, only peripherally. I've not been involved in it. Uh, okay. So I, I don't know what the background is on, on that. Okay. Do you do any research on green building projects? Uh, well, to the extent of green, including um, energy efficiency, um, yeah, yes. I mean, I've, I've been involved in that aspect of uh, green buildings. In terms of uh, using uh, recycled materials, uh, I'm aware of, but uh, not been involved in that and uh, things such as that. Okay. So somewhat yes, but not in the broad sense of green building. Gotcha. Let's go back to uh, Cliff. I know he had a question. Yeah, actually, it's probably a multi uh I need to catch up with you and Dieter. All right. <laughs> Get equal time. Uh, well, uh, Bob, has your research been limited to the lab, or, or have you ever had an opportunity to go out in the field after a hurricane or a flood and get some information on site? Well, Cliff, as, uh, I'm going to tell on the people. You know the answer to that in advance because you and I went to New Orleans after Katrina. That's right. Uh, but... uh, along with a couple of other folks from the industry and uh, – Quite an experience, uh, uh, standing, you know, where five, six, seven feet of relatively heavy polluted flood water existed on October 5th. Uh, it was gone. It was dried pretty much. Not the ninth ward yet, but still of the areas that we were. And we had a, a chance to go through a number of homes and see uh, what the impact of uh, a long duration flood and a long duration period of time after uh, the flood before reentry occurred. And uh, those houses were, what would be an appropriate term, Cliff? Horrific? Yeah, I think uh, so, yeah. Uh, the, the mold, uh, which we saw in some of the houses, was incredible. And uh, yet, while everybody was uh, 
talking about all the, the city having to be wiped off the face of the map and restarted with new. Uh, a lot of the buildings I thought uh, could be recovered and uh, you know rebuilt and uh, made uh, habitable again. Uh, the concern or question that I had in my mind at that time is how are they going to rebuild if they rebuild? And uh, unfortunately, I think in some of the places in New Orleans, they're rebuilding pretty much the way that they had built the first time. In some of the houses, they've elevated them. Uh, but Cliff, if you'll recall, um, there was the one house that we visited where the owner had very fastidiously determined the uh, base flood elevation for his location and built six or seven inches above it. Unfortunately, when the dikes broke, the water was seven or eight feet deep rather than the three feet deep of the base flood elevation, and so his house was flooded. Mm -hmm. But he did a lot of things that were smart and right. Uh, others in New Orleans now are, are elevating their homes. Uh, some others are not. And, uh, you know, my thought is that if you're an elderly couple, that uh, stairs become a, a challenge for having an elevated home is not necessarily the best solution. And, you know, I would hope that the palette of available solutions for a situation like New Orleans would include uh, uh, elevating the homes to keep it out of the flood or building um, wet flood-proof homes, in other words, homes that can withstand the flood and be recovered fairly readily, quickly, and economically. Well, if you were to look into the, you know, the crystal ball and tell us, how are we going to build these flood-resistant homes of the future, Bob? Well, you know, uh, they say that there's an enormous amount of the population in the United States that either lives with or is going to live within 50 miles of the coastlines. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, storms coming in off the oceans that can, like hurricanes, that can create uh, flooding and, and damage. The um, other comments that uh, are being made is that global climate change is going to um, affect the way that uh, floods occur in, in events. The 100-year flood of a, a century ago or a decade ago, a century from now, will be maybe a 50-year flood or a 25-year flood. So the, the idea that we can somehow or other assure ourselves that we will always be out of a floodplain or a flood zone is, I think, uh, a little naive development upstream, whatever, uh, even that can check, uh, change the location of the floodplain. So to my way of thinking that, that we need to have houses that can um, be able to go through the wetting and drying of a, a water-related event and um, dry out quickly afterwards. Um, you know, uh, homes that can withstand the potential of wetting and drying, the materials used in them, like the pla closed-cell plastic foam insulation rather than fiberglass, for example, uh, are materials that are on the market today. This isn't rocket science. It's, a, it's more expensive than fiberglass, but it doesn't suffer the uh, problems of a, the, you know, associated with flooding. Drywall is available now that is uh, both uh, wetting and drying resistant and mold resistant. And uh, there's tests that have verified that some of these materials perform very well. We've done some tests on materials like that and, and seen superior performance. So if we could adopt these kinds of materials, uh, moving the furnace unit above where the, the flood level could be, um, uh, if you had a two-story house putting the laundry on the second floor, putting the water heater on the second floor by the bathrooms, uh, that's mutually beneficial in that uh, it gets the hot water to the user much faster and saves energy not lost through the distribution system and keeps it above the flood plain or flood level and, and uh, uh, therefore it's not damaged. So these kinds of things, um, one could build a, a flood safe room, uh, could be a closet in a master bath uh, bedroom or a front hall closet or something like that that would be uh, a fiberglass enclosure built within the frame of the house uh, tied down so it, uh, you know, the hydrostatic pressure wanting to float would not cause it to float away, uh, but build this kind of room in, into a house and enable people to put their priceless uh, personal uh, possessions in or their high-value um, uh, you know, uh, possessions uh, like televisions and electronics and so forth in the room before departing when they were uh, called to evacuate for a flood or a, a storm. 
So, you know, ideally speaking, I think we could, in the future, if one wanted to develop a house that could go through an event, you'd return, hose it down, dry it out, move back in, and um, redecorate what was needed. You know, so as opposed to the process that we go through now. Bob, do you have a preference uh, basement versus slab versus uh, crawl space? In a flood? Yes. Uh, um, probably the slab. Uh, and I say that because um, um, there, uh, we, we've seen water will go under a house and under a slab uh, over time. But if it's a short flood event, uh, the, the slab tends to keep the middle portion of the ground under the house drier, certainly than it would be in a crawl space. Uh, a basement um, would potentially work as well because it's a, a hard material and a potentially drainable surface. A crawl space tends to be a challenge because you, uh, it, it, it may be a little more difficult to dry out. But I, I think that one could appropriately design for any one of the three that you mentioned, slab, crawl space, or basement, but you'd need to think about the impact of water on it. Uh, basements uh, in, what was it, Grand Forks, North Dakota, I can recall a marvelous Corps of Engineers photograph of a house that had a basement that was very well built, very well sealed, and the house was sitting about three feet higher after the flood because the basement had popped out of the ground. And mm. Oh. Not quite sure what they did with that house. <laughs> Three feet of empty space below the basement floor slab. But, um, you know, if you design the house properly uh, and consider those hydrostatic loads, uh, I think you can do any one of the three successfully. Bob, shifting gears, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the design, construction, and monitoring of low-cost, healthy homes at Tuskegee? Okay. Briefly, uh, that was a project that I challenged Tuskegee on. Um, we, uh, Tuskegee is in what they refer to as the Black Belt of Alabama. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of uh, low-income uh, folks that are right on the range of uh, the fringe of the property line. And housing typically is uh, trailers are old. And we were trying to develop uh, a new house that could be built. The intent and challenge was to build a house that could be uh, conventionally financed with a mortgage at four people in a household with one wage earner earning minimum wage, which translated back in the late 1990s when we were doing it to about $35,000 house, mm -hmm. which came out to about 700 square feet, two bedrooms, one bath. Not a palace by any means, but certainly very habitable and better than a lot of conditions they were in. Um, we were interested in using materials in this that would make it as healthy and uh, habitable uh, as possible for the occupants. Uh, the, the poverty level is very subject to asthma and uh, other uh, respiratory problems. So we used a, a synthetic uh, wood floor and uh, had a HEPA uh, filtered pressure and makeup system in it, uh, used a, a very well sealed uh, envelope, uh, good quality windows. Not top of the line, you know, premier windows, but good quality windows. And uh, for example, we sealed all of the penetrations uh, between the floor and the crawl space, and we had only one, and that was the waistline, and sealed, uh, minimized and sealed any penetrations in the ceiling so that there wouldn't be any uh, air or dust movement coming from the ceiling. The uh, structure has been tested and uh, performs. Uh, fairly well from an energy efficiency viewpoint. Uh, it uses a heat pump. It's not a um, high-performance building, but it's a uh, good-performance building at a very low cost. And in terms of um, indoor air quality, uh, seem to perform uh, in, a, in a very good manner as well, not necessarily at the you know, top end of uh, what might be possible, but certainly uh, in a, in a good manner and well within the economic limitations that we placed on it. Okay, we got, I think Cliff has one more before we go to our roundup, Bob. Bob, can you tell us a little bit about your work on a device called a healthy air unit? Right. Uh, this was a project that Oak Ridge National Laboratory did uh, for the um, California Energy Commission, 
And what we were looking at was to try and put together on a standard uh, residential heating and air conditioning package, that's the furnace and the uh, outside unit and all those pieces that normally go in, put together the elements that would give uh, people that uh, suffered from asthma or allergies or just wanted the highest possible indoor air quality, all of those features together and integrate them in such a way that uh, we could uh, achieve the lowest potential cost in building it and uh, to uh, also re uh, keep the energy performance as high as possible. Uh, bringing fresh air in to uh, uh, improve the indoor air quality is a, a strategy that ASHRAE and others uh, propose uh, and, and you know, mandate. This is fine, but if you're bringing fresh air in and it's 30 degrees outside and you're having to warm it to 70, that's an energy penalty. So we were looking at, um, you know, a system that would monitor and determine what one needed to do, whether it's fresh air or recycled air or filtered air or whatever. Uh, we started the project and went through a, a uh, market analysis at CEC's request, California Energy Commission's request and found that uh, there was a surprisingly large level of interest in such a system, even though it might cost $2,000 more than a conventional heating and cooling system. Uh, at that level, people expressed a, a high level of interest in it. Subsequently, uh, unfortunately, the uh, project did not get funded to pursue the, the actual design and prototype development of it. But I have noted um, in a, a positive sense that uh, various uh, HVAC manufacturers, uh, the big names in the industry, are, are bringing out this kind of approach within their uh, systems. And so I think the uh, idea is beginning to take hold and, and uh, will probably find its way into the market. Very good. Okay. Gentlemen, let's go to the roundup. What do you right. think? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more about Legends at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you acquire about their products and or services. All right, let's go to the roundup here. We've got, uh, we still have Dr. Dieter on the line. Let's see if we've got Dieter with us. Hello, Dieter. Yes, he is. All right. Any, any questions or comments here for the oh, final? Not really questions, but comments. And I think, Bob, uh, it's, it's in the things in the same direction uh, in which I think that may have something to do with our background as mechanical engineers. But I think it's wonderful to hear that they um, worked with filtered air to be bringing into the house to lower the indoor uh, the, the contamination in the indoor environment. I think that is a wonderful, wonderful idea. I, I also, and this is the thing that bothers me every time, Somebody buys a house, let's say for $100,000, and for another $100 more, maybe $200 more, maybe $500 more, you really could have added something that helps the environment, that helps you with um, a better uh, living spaces and a more economical space. I wish I would have had that opportunity when I bought my house, which was three years old when I bought it, so I wasn't there when it was built, but I gladly would have spent here and there a little bit more on 
on better air systems, handling systems, and so on. Another thing that I never ever thought about, and this is when you learn something, yeah, why, why is all my stuff, in my case, it really doesn't matter. If my, if my house gets flooded, the United States are gone. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, why not have this in a, in a utility room uh, upstairs where it is floodproof? And I'm, I'm sure there are a couple of people who will object to that. And I said, hey, then I hear the noise of the fan more. If it's down in the basement, you know, I can sleep better at night or I don't hear it. But I think there are still other ways of doing it. In other words, I, I think there are many ways in which we can improve our living spaces when you look at a couple of alternative uh, uh, solutions or uh, uh, old, we all do a couple of old things we can't get rid of because our grandmother did it and we don't even think about it. That's the time when you need to hire a consultant and say, hey, guys, what you're doing is stupid. <laughs> well, very so good. That, that, uh, I, I'm glad to hear that there are things going into that direction and uh, trying to rectify it, making people aware of it, making uh, other uh, 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 trades aware of all of that. I'm also, I, I'd like to add, Dieter, I'm glad to see there are still people working on the, you know, the whole idea of building sciences and, and trying to build homes and in a more healthy and also more environmentally friendly way and that are more efficient. And Absolutely. Anybody can build a barn on a farm. That is easy. <laughs> that is easily done. But we changed so many things around for whatever reason. Yeah, we who knew air conditioning 100 years ago, 50 years ago? Nobody. You know, that, that is, and, 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 and a, 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 a building with all of these new things in there, that's a different science, and we've got to approach that differently. And uh, that's, I think, where we made all the mistakes. That's where, that's where uh, people um, find out uh, that their mistakes were being made. That's why we have building science. People That's right. become, uh, uh, who become consultants. There you go. Bob, I just wanted to, my only final question would be, is there any other comments you'd like to make or anything you'd like to add that we missed? Uh, just that it's been fun to chat with you and uh, in, enjoyed uh, working in the area. It's, uh, I think, a, a really interesting and uh, fascinating thing from an intellectual and scientific viewpoint. And, uh, I hope that uh, more people will get involved in looking at flood damage resistance uh, issues in the future as well. It's been great. Thanks, guys. Great. Cliff? Yeah, I think my, just my last one, I think, before we let you go, uh, of what work-related accomplishment are you most proud of? Well, uh, it uh, shifts gears, okay? Um, I mentioned that I had done some work with the Chicago Housing Authority on insulating walls, and mm -hmm. uh, in that interaction, uh, this was back in uh, the late 90s, early 2000-ish period. Uh, they had a lot of uh, trouble in their Robert Taylor homes, which was on the south side of Chicago. It turns out next door to Illinois Institute of Technology, where I went to school. I, I was at school when they built it, and uh, 40 years later, uh, it had disintegrated into chaos almost. And part of the problems in Robert Taylor homes, the high-rise uh, tenements, that they had for low-income and poverty folks was that uh, the lighting had been heavily vandalized. The gangs had taken over and uh, decided that they would be much safer to operate in their in the sinister dark. mode in the dark. Yeah. And so we developed some uh, high-efficiency lighting that was uh, vandal, very vandal-resistant. It was installed. It gave people light there. It gave people hope. Uh, the housing authority was interested in installing it in the rest of Robert Taylor homes uh, and would have, except that, interestingly enough, HUD had come up with several tens of millions or more uh, dollars to demolish the whole complex, which was the ultimate outcome. Mm. But it was a real satisfaction to be able to help people have light in an area of darkness in all of the, the aspects of that, not only physical, but in the psychological darkness and so forth that was there. And that was really fulfilling for me. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you. I'll tell you, Bob, we really enjoyed the show. I want to make sure that we say thanks to you again for joining us this week. I want to uh, thank Brian McFarland of Legends for joining us again uh, for the first time this week. We'll have him back in two weeks. Uh, of course, we also want to thank our sponsors before we go. 
Uh, Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legendsenviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management uh, company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Please come back and join us next week for show 100 here at IAQ Radio. We've got... We're working on a couple uh, surprises. We're going to keep it under keep it under our hat for right now, but uh, we'll be back next week at about the same time for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 